0: Exactly. Your DNA could be on a knife that you never touched because you shook hands with someone who then touched the knife. It could even be that by chance, sometimes there might be little to no DNA from the person who touched the knife, but the DNA that they picked up from another person could be on the knife. So there were actually, that has happened in experiments. And even in real life, there was one case that really surprised me where there was a guy who actually was charged with a murder it ended up you know that they figured out that he hadn't done it he couldn't have done it but his dna showed up on a dead body
1: this is the way podcast the militias needed to have a heads up I was coming. I personally think that it, you know, like in chess, so that's, that's how deep the addiction goes. You know, I've been incarcerated most of my life. Having you know.
0: a conversation with or they've been given no option, either join or die. Yeah, snipers, and it was a military. The film is famously visually gorgeous.
1: If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com This is FM 91.7, WHS stores at the top of the hour. As the intro said, be sure to go to podcasttheway.com. Today, if you're squeamish, 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 you might want to tune away because I'm saying with the author of Gory Details, Adventures from the Dark Side of Science, Erica Engelhaupt. So how are you doing today, Erica?
0: Thanks, I'm good. Thanks for having me on.
1: Thanks for coming out to the show you um sent the book over which was great i'm so happy to read this and i have about 50 pages left i'm on page 220 but there's so many chapters and i always like to write notes for a guest or in this case reading the book i like to write notes and i just couldn't stop writing notes and (laughs) now looking back some of them don't even make sense i'm like wait what does that relate to so yeah you covered a lot of gory details to put it lightly (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's my job here. Yeah. I write about all kinds of, um, I guess you could call it gross, creepy or taboo areas of science. And um, so the book is kind of a little different in that it's not about just one topic. It's about all of those kinds of areas uh, of science that I'm fascinated by. And so it's set up in six chapters you know, that have themes like taboos and creepy crawlies, things like that. And then you've got short stories within that. So hopefully people can just kind of either pick it up, and you know, you can just read a few short stories that are the things you're most interested in, or you can read it from the beginning straight through. Um, either way, but I hope that people get, um, you know, kind of pick up some of the, the themes throughout the book, throughout the stories. Things like, you know, um, what's taboo and why? Why do we? Why are certain things disgusting to us? Um, and uh, yeah, those are some of the kinds of things that I'm interested in and things about, you know, how we think and what makes us tick.
1: So basically, like, those morbid curiosity questions or anything yeah. like you think is gross, but you want to know, that's what the book's for.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I think um, the kind of people who really enjoy this book are, are curious people. Um, the kind of people who, you know, if you if you're someone who enjoys mysteries and, you know, true crime and you're into the detective shows and all of that kind of stuff, and you're always just curious, then, you know, then you're my kind of people, (laughs) you know? I I think that the idea of having morbid curiosity kind of gets a bad name. Like, um, it sounds like it's a bad thing, uh, or I think people make it out to be a bad thing. Like, oh, that's that's morbid. but when you think about it, you know, morbid curiosity is completely normal. Like, why wouldn't we be interested in death? Why wouldn't we be interested in, um, you know, murder mysteries? Why, you know, those are like the oldest stories in the book. Literally, like, you know, the Bible is full of these kinds of stories of, uh, you know, death and and murder. We're always fascinated by, and it's not necessarily you know, malicious to be, to have that curiosity. I think it's it's very natural actually to to have that curiosity and to, to think about death. And I think it's, you know, it's kind of too bad that we have sort of demonized morbid curiosity and that we're so squeamish about talking about death to the point that we can't even, you know, have conversations that we really need to have with family members and loved ones and things like that. Um, Because we just want to pretend that death doesn't exist or doesn't happen. And so I hope that with my book, by telling some of these really interesting stories about what happens to, you know, our bodies when we die, or, you know, interesting mysteries that science has solved and how science is getting better at solving them. um, I hope that telling those kinds of stories makes it a little bit easier for people to have those conversations to, you know express their morbid curiosity and their curiosity about gross things to talk about our bodies and things that we think are embarrassing or gross um, because i think that we miss out if we are so squeamish and so uptight that we can't even talk about those kinds of subjects
1: oh yeah definitely do you know who fee is by any chance no i don't he's a youtuber who actually stopped recently but he was a great like he would dive into random subject he won awards and he did a whole episode like Why Are We Morbidly Curious.
0: Oh, great. It, oh, yeah, hi- I would that.
1: Highly recommend it. In your book, too, you said um, the theories for why we are morbidly curious, besides, mm-hmm. like, it is interesting in a different kind of way, was because two reasons. One, we yearn to emphasize, and the other reason is to, or possible theory, is to understand why a mind would do harm to, like, another person.
0: Right. And when you think about it, you know, those are not malicious or, or, you know, bad kinds of reasons to have morbid curiosity. You know, we are very empathetic people. Um, It's part of human nature to have empathy. Um, And I think, you know, we've recognized more and more that, for example, when we call someone a psychopath, what we're saying is that they lack empathy um, for others. And so I think that we're very interested both in um, empathizing with people, either whether it's the victims of crime um, or, you know, people who have gone through some strange, you know, medical situation. We're interested in that too. And I think that that is partly because we want to empathize with those people. There's, there's satisfaction that we get from empathizing with others. And then, you know, the other part too, about wanting to, um, Either protect ourselves. You know, we can get information about how to protect ourselves um, from being a, becoming a victim of crime or being in a situation like that. Um, so that's a you know also a very reasonable um, have morbid more curiosity, and also just to you know to understand what's going on. Like you said, in in the mind of someone uh, who. You know, wants to harm other people. Um, I think that it's all you know. We're we're curious about what makes other people tick. Whether whether those people are up to something good or something bad, we want to know what what makes them tick and and um, and understand how we can relate to to other people as well. So you know, so I think that for some reason we we demonize the idea of being having morbid curiosity or being curious about those kinds of things. Um, You know, when I tell people the kind of stuff that I write about, um, and I write about a lot of, you know, forensic science, and there's a lot of dead people and stuff that I write about. And um, sometimes people are kind of surprised when they meet me because I'm, you know, pretty normal looking person. I don't necessarily wear more black than the average person. Uh, Jet black hair, they expect me to like maybe be really goth looking. And um, I don't necessarily have that look going. So I think sometimes people are a little surprised that, um, that I seem like a very just average normal looking person. And I think that's because actually average normal looking people are have just as much morbid curiosity as, you know, someone who's all goth-ed out and, um, you know, likes to wear lots of skull jewelry and stuff like that. So not that I'm opposed to skull jewelry. I have, I definitely have my own share of, you know, fun skull themed <laughs> paraphernalia. But as you can see, there's like a skull on the, on one of my bookshelves behind me, not a real one.
1: <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> you didn't pick it up from your travels.
0: No. <laughs> no don't don't deal in human remains that's wrong
1: <laughs> yeah you did cover that a bit that i do want to cover in the book well i'm gonna mention but the morbid mm-hmm. curiosity too the news when you watch tv a lot of it is sort of scary like oh there's a murderer here or be careful about what they're putting in the water or, like something like that and right. i think it's to sort of bring that fear factor into the audience because it attracts more views people have to focus on so they like know what to look out for and what to feel safe about.
0: Yeah, I think people, um, you know, what I've always found is, so I started out uh, with gory details as a blog first at science news magazine, and then at national geographic. And I've always found that a lot of my blog posts that are about some of the like kind of scariest, creepiest or grossest stuff tend to get the most traffic, the most people read them. And um, part of that is, you know, there's this element, I guess, of people are interested in something that's surprising or shocking, right? And, um, but I really, I, I like to think that we're also just really, we're interested in those things that catch us by surprise. And... That are something that you you just haven't had you haven't thought about before, or the kind of question that you would have been too afraid to ask or too embarrassed to ask for yourself. Um, so the kinds of things that I like to write about, I don't want to write about something just for shock value. Like I don't want to just tell you about something gross that happened, or you know really like sick and twisted just for the sake of telling you that this crazy twisted thing happened. Um, it really has to be something where there's some interesting science in it, something that we can learn from. Um, So, you know, for example, I was personally really interested by this this weird case that was going on in the Pacific Northwest where um, disembodied feet were just like washing up on beaches around uh, you know, the Pacific Northwest, like, Vancouver area. And on face value, when that started happening, people were really freaked out and, like, oh my god, there must be some serial killer on the loose or something who's, like, chopping off feet and then they're <laughs> and throwing them in the ocean, right, and then they're, like, washing up on shore sometime later. And, um, which is crazy and interesting and has shock value in and of itself. But then the real story behind that, and what I, you know, as I was doing research and calling people, and I spoke to, for example, you know, uh, um, one of the people from the forensic examiner's office up in in Vancouver who had worked on some of these cases, um, and examined these feet <laughs> that were coming in, and the feet were usually inside a shoe, often a sneaker, and um, you know, it, it just turned out to be so much more interesting. Than actually it would be if it was just a serial killer, because there's all this kind of cool science that people have had to do to figure out, like, well, what would what does happen to a human body if it's in the ocean? Like, how does it decompose? And um, and you know, studying the oceanography and the currents in that region. And what you end up (laughs) coming to find out is that, you know, if if a body goes into the water for any reason, you know, just whether it's suicide. it it doesn't have to be a murder, you know, just a boating accident could cause there would be a body in the water. And, um, the, (laughs) the, that, in that particular part of the world, a body in the cold water is more likely to sink. And there are a lot of scavengers in that part of the coastal ocean, like, you know, crabs and lobsters and things like that. And they're going to come, you know, scavenge on that dead body. And it so happens that our ankles don't have, um, lot of like there's not a lot of connections between the bones it's very kind of loose and a lot of tendons and things holding it together so it just so happens that all of those scavengers can gnaw through all of that soft tissue and feet are one of the things that's going to basically come apart first on a dead body and add in the fact that now we all have these sneakers full of lightweight foams um, that float and so now you've got a perfect recipe for Human feet to be basically popping off of bodies and floating to the surface. And then the winds happen to be right to drive them into this area called the Salish Sea. And so that's why you get this unusual collection (laughs) of human feet washing the shore there. And those are the kind of just like strange little science mysteries that um, personally I find it just as satisfying to figure all of that stuff out and figure. Figure out why that weird phenomenon would be happening. Um, It's just as interesting to me that it's not a serial killer. That it's a whole series of, you know, like the perfect storm.
1: Yeah, I remember that chapter. And well, Nike Air Maxes—they're made of air, so air goes up; they float. (laughs) But all of the other shoes too are like, as you mentioned in the book, are made like less dense and reasons like that floats and. Also, I remember you got like detail with like, the body, they like tested how much people would drown or like the water gets in the lungs. And then when the body goes to the bottom, like a thin layer of something would like cover the body from the water. So even like that chapter alone had a lot of details in it.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's that's (laughs) a lot of great details, especially when you get into the dead bodies. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> so we eat lobsters lobsters eat us circle of life <laughs> yes
0: <laughs> it was right that one was about like the revenge of the red lobster <laughs> all of the, the lobsters and crabs come back to haunt us
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so the book isn't for like people who are screamish that example shows you even mentioned death as you mentioned earlier and i put a note by page 24 i almost wanted to tap out because that's <laughs> the page where you go into detail about seeing your first autopsy. So like right off the bat, you talk about your experiences with autopsies.
0: Yeah, I I, I kind of... Uh kind of three into it there, <laughs> which is pretty much how I felt. Uh, you know, I, I'm the kind of person who I grew up watching shows like Quincy, which you're probably too young to remember, but it was like the like 80s version of CSI, where you had this like medical examiner who was always solving the mystery and fighting crime. And so... I've, I've always been interested in forensic science and, in you know, the work that medical examiners do and so forth. And, but I had never seen an autopsy in real life, you know, and we all know that what you see on CSI and bones and those kinds of shows is not going to be exactly accurate. Um, But you don't really know what it's going to be like in, in real life until you see it. And I, was lucky enough to have the opportunity to go attend a seminar that's for actual homicide detectives and law enforcement officers at the Baltimore Medical Examiner's Office. And this is, you know, one of the country's biggest medical examiner's offices. Um, You know, they're handling literally, you know, thousands of cases um, of any kind of of questionable death where, where... Anytime there needs to be an autopsy performed in the state of Maryland, basically, this is where the bodies would go uh, for an autopsy, and they're they're very thorough and they handle a lot of um, a lot of you know homicides and violent crime cases as well. So so I was able to go and attend this uh, seminar that was you know several days long, intended more for for actual detectives you know to train them in basic forensic science and you know, how to examine a crime scene, uh, what to look for on a body, how to, um, you know, how medical examiners decide um, what the cause of death is. So there were all of these talks on everything from like there was a whole talk on blunt force trauma with pictures and then a whole talk on, you know, sharp force trauma with pictures. And that was all your stabbings and impalings and things like that. Why and didn't
1: you make the book a picture book? Why didn't you include that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, you do not necessarily want to see that stuff. I mean, it's, it was very, it was fascinating. And for someone like me, who is curious and who um, you know, who's comfortable with, you know, reading the forensic science journals and things like that, you know, where there are pictures of, of real cases because that's how they learn from each other. Um, but still, it was it was kind of overwhelming to, to see that and to see what um, law enforcement and medical examiners and forensic examiners, crime scene investigators, to see the kinds of things that they're seeing on a day-to-day basis and how they interpret it um it was really fascinating and part as part of that they we were allowed to um observe you know from some distance um the medical examiners doing some autopsies and no matter how much csi you've watched <laughs> um you know you, you, i still felt kind of thrown into it just like you did you know in reading about it where it's like oh my gosh you know this is actually a room with you know multiple gurneys with actual dead bodies and then seeing the medical examiners you know do their exams and do the autopsy and it's it's a little bit like on TV you know they do this Y shaped incision on the chest open the chest cavity and they you know and they're they're examining the whole body first you know they're scraping under the fingernails doing all of that stuff and then they open the body and then the The part that's still kind of um, that will always stick with me is um, in order to examine the brain, they, you know, cut open, they basically like peel your face, make an incision across the top of the head, peel the face down, and then cut this sort of like wedge-shaped part out of the top and back of the skull, lift that off, and then you can basically just see the brain in there and they, you know, Go in, take that out, so they can weigh it and take samples, look for, you know, trauma, injury, brain disease, that kind of thing. Um, but actually, seeing, you know, a body with its brain removed and a hole in the head, whoa, you know, it it is very shocking, um, and it's scary in a sense. But the funny thing is that, for me at least having seen all of that, it was kind of, you know, it was kind of scary and shocking at the time when I saw it. But in the end, I, I really felt almost a little bit comforted by having seen it. I mean, it it made me feel more comfortable with the process, with what goes on in an autopsy. And, you know, knock on wood, hopefully, um, I'll never get murdered, and they'll never have to do an autopsy on me. But if they ever did, it made me feel a lot more comfortable with the process and what they do, and you know that that these are like professionals. You know, they're they're not squeamish, they're not, you know, they're not <laughs> grossed out. They're very thorough and attentive, and um, and it they did a really good job, and um, you know, it it just kind of it humanized the people who do that kind of work for me as well. You know, made me feel a little more um, trusting because, you know, we when you watch shows, when you watch TV shows where there's a medical examiner or the kind of you know crime scene investigators, there's a little, they they often depict them as like really quirky or weird. Um,
1: (laughs) like house, like that show, (laughs)
0: right? Like house, you know, like they've got some kind of social disorder or something like that. Whereas the people who I actually met there were, um, you know, very nice people, very, um, you know, very into the, the cases that they were working on very interested and really worked hard, worked very hard to try to find out what happened to, to every person who came their way. So, um, and the lab was very professionally set up, you know, just all of this equipment. It made me feel like, you know what? Um, our 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 criminal justice system has lots of problems, right? Um, but I really appreciate the science and the you know the the work that the medical examiners are doing. And it made me feel just a little bit better. Having seen it, it wasn't as scary as I thought it would be. And I feel a little bit less scared of the idea of, you know, seeing a dead body or seeing um, seeing a medical procedure or something like that. Um, just, I think it has helped make me a little bit less of a scaredy cat <laughs> because I think that I have a tendency as a person, like I, you know, I, I'm i a little squeamish just like everybody else and I get grossed out and um, and I definitely have things I'm afraid of, so... I think that the kind of things that I write about uh, that work has actually made me a little bit less of a scaredy cat, (laughs) a little bit less, less squeamish. And I think that that's been good for me in the end.
1: I feel like you have to like, you can't be squeamish, especially with like, what you include in that book.
0: (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah, you know, to be clear, like, not all of it is as, um, is as hard to deal with as something like an autopsy. I mean, I've also got lots of, you know, it, lots of stuff on I love insects and so that's something that like people are kind of grossed out by um by bugs but I think they're really they're so fascinating and
1: wait I thought you said you were afraid of insects in the book
0: well roaches I will probably always be afraid of <laughs> I think I've gotten more comfortable with a lot of insects I think they're they're fascinating I've grown to really appreciate them far more um but, yeah, there is something definitely just like a visceral reaction that I think most of us have to, to roaches. There's just like certain insects and animals in particular that just really trigger that disgust for us, you know. And, you know, usually the kinds of things that we feel disgust for are things that can harm us or make us sick, you um, that's what scientists think is probably the the root of the feeling of disgust because disgust is pretty universal like people in every culture have things that they find disgusting, and most people around the world, no matter where they're from, um are disgusted by certain things like um, blood, body fluids um spiders spiders. Probably pretty universal, yeah. I mean, people and and insects rate as somewhat disgusting, but that gets a little bit more cultural because there are some insects that are eaten in some parts of the world and not in others. When you get into food in general, that's where it gets a little more hazy and a little more culturally driven where, you know, some people find certain foods delicious and you know, people in another part of the world will find the same thing totally disgusting. Um, you know, the like the idea of this cheese that they make in um, Spain that uses live maggots in the production of the cheese and then you're supposed to eat the maggots as part of the cheese and that's part of the flavor experience. You know, that, I, I just, I, I think, <laughs> i could not get past that (laughs) i think you would have to be raised with that cheese in order to really appreciate it um but it is considered a delicacy you know and and there are things that certainly that we eat as americans that um you know not everybody thinks are so delicious as we do so
1: um yeah blue cheese is like one thing because it has like a it was it moss no it's a What's in blue cheese? It's made with the um a fungus. Yeah, fungus. So like fungus yeah. is weird, let alone maggots. Mm-hmm. And then like lobsters used to be uh you couldn't serve in a prison because it was so low class. But now right. everybody eats lobster. Right? People
0: thought that was lobster was really disgusting, and now we think it's really delicious and wonderful and a delicacy, and we pay tons of money for it. Um. So you know, to some extent, disgust is relative, right? You know, some different people can can. Have a different sense of disgust or sensitivity of disgust for certain things, particularly with food. Then there are other things that tend to be more universal, like you know, um, poop is pretty much universally disgusting <laughs> to people around the world. Um, and you know, things like that that really have the potential directly to make you sick tend to be um, tend to be the things that everyone is disgusted by. and and insects are kind of in a middle category there where, um, you know, a lot of people don't really, would not want a spider walking on them, for example. Um, that's fairly universal, but, um, you know, in some places it would be common to eat crickets or ants and others that would be considered disgusting. So, I having tried, <laughs> having now tried lots of insects, at a conference that I went to, um, I will say that that one, you know, is, is definitely very relative. You know, I, I tasted um, all these different foods that were made with insects. There was a chef there who specializes in cooking with insects and in making them really tasty. And most of it was pretty tasty. I mean, it, mostly it ta- they tasted like whatever they were cooked in or whatever spices were used. Most of the insects didn't have like very much flavor on their own. So in that sense, I could see why, um, you know, that's something where it's more just the idea that I think that's disgusting to us because if you actually taste a cricket, it tasted more or less a little bit like (laughs) cardboardy to me, but you know, there wasn't really much of a strong flavor to most of the insects. it was more the, the concept of it and, um, and to some extent, maybe the texture, like for the big ones, the, the ones that were hard for me to eat as a somewhat squeamish person were the um, silkworm pupae, which are like um, in between the larvae and the adult. And um, they're big and segmented and um, uh, you
1: ate that I just looked it up.
0: Yeah, I ate one of those.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> it was cooked in like a curry sauce, so
1: <laughs> they sell was, them in like oh, cups too. I see. They can go in a well
0: disguise, um... but it that one was hard for me because of the texture. Because um, it felt more like you were really like biting into an insect with like that squishy body. Um, so that was the hard part, but anything else, you know, the smaller stuff, or especially like if it was fried or something and it was just crispy, it wasn't that different from eating any other kind of like crispy fried thing, you know, to be totally honest. (laughs) So, yeah, I felt like I had to at least try eating the insects, um, you know, (laughs) in the name of being the gory details writer (laughs) and, you know, it, it is. It is an environmentally friendly um, kind of agriculture. And so there was this whole conference that I went to that was about you know sustainability and why we should all be eating more insects. And there are a lot of ways that we can use them without having to like necessarily um, you know, make it the main course for dinner. And so that was really interesting to learn about, too, because, for example, there's going to be there's a lot of insects being grown including maggots, um, the maggots, the the maggots of black soldier flies are getting to be a really big business now because you can grow them, um, using, you know, waste products. So it's very like efficient, very green. Um, you can use food waste, for example, to grow the, the maggots. And then the maggots are great to use as feed for livestock, like, chickens pigs you know other animals that we eat we may not want to eat the maggots but a chicken is more than happy to eat some maggots and to have that as part of their feed so that's like a good way that we can incorporate insects into
1: our food supply is that um, common practice or is that like the future
0: i think that's coming in the future it's it's already starting um the Black Soldier Fly Larvae, the maggots are already a pretty big business in China. they're They've got lots of farms set up. And I met people a lot of people who were setting up basically maggot farming operations in the u s and getting started on it um, as like a really great business opportunity to get into because there's so much demand for animal feed, and there were even companies that were working on it for pet food as well. Because when you think about it, our pets are also not so squeamish about eating insects. And so there were people working on um, cat and dog food, for example, that had um, different kinds of insect products in it, crickets, um, maggots, et cetera. So, um, So yeah, wave of the future. You know, if even if you're not eating the maggots, you know, your <laughs> the chicken you eat may be eating them, and your dogs and cats <laughs> may soon be eating a more, you know, environmentally friendly insect-based diet in the near future.
1: Yeah, I could try like a cricket. I could try like some insect like that. I'm willing to try that. The way I could see it is oh, uh, maybe it's a cow, but like real small, and it's exoskeletons mm-hmm. on the outside. Like I don't know, whatever. I not that different
0: it. from a shrimp, if you think about it, you know, I mean, a shrimp looks just as ugly as a giant cricket, <laughs> 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 it has, has a, you know, an exoskeleton. So if you if you think about it that way, it's, it's not, it's not really that bad. I mean, it's a lot of it really is all in our heads, you know, in what we consider to be gross.
1: Yeah, and um, for like feeding or like the animals or whatever. It's uh, you can fit like a bunch of them probably in like small cages and then you just feed them like the waste and there you go perfect
0: (laughs) exactly exactly and so yeah that's what they're doing I mean so the lab that I visited where they were um, they were basically figuring out great new ways of farming these maggots and so they had all these experiments going and they had this room that was kept warm like an incubator and it was just filled with racks with trays and trays and trays full of um whatever waste product they were testing at the moment. When I was there, they had um stuff left over from um breweries and distilleries, I believe it was, where so it's just like grains, like after you brew beer or something like that, you've got all of this, you've got these grains left over. Um, I guess, barley, malt. Well, I, I'm not, I don't know that much about beer brewing. <laughs> but anyway, all of that stuff is just left over. Normally, it would just get thrown out. But when you think about it, that's like perfectly good plant matter. And the maggots were thrilled to eat it, you know. So there's all kinds of things that they were looking at being able to feed the maggots. And then, you know, you grow the maggots. They, they can be basically clean <laughs> and um, and processed. So, they had done experiments um, feeding them different kinds of animal waste, Um, but the scientist I talked to said the worst one was when um, she was testing growing the maggots on um, poop, basically, and so she had to, like, collect chicken poop in order to do her experiments, and it was literally just, like, her shoveling chicken poop from, like, under, like, big cages full of chickens to get she was like that she was like I almost quit my PhD like that was just almost too much but um but you know there have to be brave scientists who are willing to to you know wade into the poop and do these kinds of experiments
1: what's that tv show like the worst jobs or like right, know, like uh... the world's worst
0: jobs <laughs> yeah scientists some of the scientists that I've met definitely should be on that show I mean um, I really appreciate how how brave they are, though. You know, the kind of people who will do experiments using chicken poop <laughs> and maggots in order to figure out, you know, um, a, a more environmentally friendly way of, of doing agriculture, you know, that's great. And some of the people I've met who do uh, some of the forensic science experiments, I mean, you know, you have to be willing to really really go for it, you know, like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna throw a pig in the ocean and watch it decompose over <laughs> over the course of a month. And um, you know, or one scientist I loved, she did all of these experiments um, on blowflies. and she she actually ended up needing to understand. What would blowflies potentially eat at a crime scene? And so if you think about it, um, blowflies are like bottleflies. They're they're the ones that show up first, usually, if there's anything dead around. And so they're very common to see at a crime scene where they're the
1: big fat them. black ones like those. They're
0: like the big, they can be sometimes they're iridescent blue or green, they can be really pretty, oh. or sometimes they're just big black ones. And um, but yeah, they're generally big and buzzy. And <laughs> also, you say they could
1: be really pretty, like these flies could be pretty. Yeah, <laughs>
0: Yeah, they can be if, as, as much as flies are pretty. Some of them are really gorgeous, like really pretty iridescent colors and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they're most famous for is, you know, being very sensitive to any kind of smell of death or decay. And so they'll show up really quickly at crime scenes. And it turns out to be an important issue for crime scene investigators because if you've got flies coming in and they're, let's say, landing on a dead body and maybe eating, you know, blood or picking up body fluids, things like that, and then they're flying somewhere else um, and landing there and then they're pooping, then you end up with um, basically DNA from a crime scene getting spread all over the place and it can really confuse the issue. I went to a forensic science meeting and they were really talking about the fact that it's almost impossible for them to distinguish between fly poop on a wall and blood spatter on a wall, because if the fly has been eating poop, or if the fly has been eating blood, then it's poop basically contains some of the blood oh. so <laughs> so this is one of those like really gross things that you would never think of unless you were a crime scene investigator and it was like you know this could be totally screwing up your case where you could be confusing um you know blood spatter as being as coming from someone being you know hit with something and blood spattering everywhere to it could be you know from flies and you could have DNA from an innocent person that's actually carried in to a crime scene by flies. And so strange enough, you know, this is starting to become a big problem for uh, for forensic science because we're able to detect such teeny, teeny, tiny levels of DNA at this point. Uh, The technology is so good that it creates a problem when you can have DNA moving around just from a fly landing on something, or just from literally, one person touching something, and then touching another object. That's called transfer DNA. And that's becoming um, a really hot topic as well. And so
1: actually on that too, did I rewrite that if you shake somebody's hand for 10 seconds, and then mm-hmm. they have a knife and they stab somebody, your DNA could be on that knife?
0: Exactly. Your DNA could be on a knife that you never touched because you shook hands with someone who then touched the knife. It could even be that by chance, sometimes there might be little to no DNA from the person who touched the knife, but the DNA that they picked up from another person could be on the knife. So there were actually, that has happened in experiments. And even in real life, there was one case that really surprised me where there was a guy who actually was charged with a murder it ended up you know that they figured out that he hadn't done it he couldn't have done it but his dna showed up on a dead body this man had been murdered and they they you know scraped his fingernails and took you know his hands and stuff like that and they run it through the computer system and they get a match to this guy's dna the guy it turned out was in the hospital at the time of the murder, but he had been brought to the hospital by the same paramedics that handled, that then went to the case of where the person had been murdered. And so what apparently happened was that the paramedics, maybe they didn't change their gloves or something, but they basically, they touched this innocent man, took him to the hospital, then went to another case where there was a dead body, touched that body, and then ended up finding the first guy's DNA, the innocent guy's DNA, on that body, and it had just been transferred there accidentally by the paramedics. But you know, unless someone figured that out, and it was like you know, the circumstances of the case were such that that um, they ended up figuring out that oh, this guy couldn't have couldn't have done it. But at first, it was pretty confusing, and I think that we're going to see more cases like that. Um, there's no reason why we won't. And so it ends up being surprisingly important to understand how something like an insect would move DNA around a crime scene or how, you know, shaking someone's hand or touching, you know, how how easily can DNA move around in the environment? So one of my favorite scientists had actually, knowing all of this, she did experiments trying to see what would flies actually land on or or prefer to eat at a crime scene um, and would they end up picking up DNA from from those things that they preferred. And so she ended up doing experiments where she had to provide blowflies with like a buffet of options, including things that they might see at a crime scene like blood um, and different bodily fluids, including um, human semen. And what she ended up discovering was that blowflies loved the human semen more than blood, more than anything else. And it happens also to be, since it's you know how you're passing along your genetic material, it's loaded with DNA. And so um, that really indicated that you know these flies, if they if they encounter um, you know, human semen in a in an environment, they love it. They will eat it, you know, preferentially to anything else that they can find. They'll gorge themselves on it, in fact, she said, until they're like stumbling around almost like they're drunk. And then that fly could easily fly somewhere, poop out some of you know that person's DNA onto anything, you know, we're at a crime scene, and all of a sudden, your DNA is at a crime scene that you've never even been to um, because you've been visited by a fly. <laughs> <Wow>. so, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, it's kind of, it's crazy. The, the kinds of, um, you know, strange connections that, that scientists end up making, but I, I really appreciate that they're even willing to ask those questions because I think most people would, it would never even occur to them to you know, to ask those questions, or certainly to do those kinds of experiments.
1: Yeah, and I wonder, um, I mean, some innocent people get arrested and put in jail, we know that. So I wonder how many this could free or save or, yeah,
0: right. There's no telling. But I do think that we probably will see cases coming up in the courts, um, where either convictions are being challenged, because you know, because their DNA evidence could have been contaminated or misinterpreted in these ways, you know, or um, or, people, you know, people getting wrongfully convicted. Um, it, it throws a lot of monkey wrenches into the system, really, because, like I said, we've gotten so good at detecting DNA and we, you know, in courtrooms, that's like the gold standard. If there's DNA evidence, it's like, oh, well, his DNA was there. I mean convict right
1: so CSI has that part down like that part's actually kind of accurate
0: yeah (laughs) yeah, I mean people juries really do value DNA evidence very highly and it does you know tend to get convictions and so um so I think it's just it's another thing that we have to think about um you know in the courtroom and just as a society that you know just like we have learned through science that um, eyewitness testimony is not as ironclad as we used to think it was, um, that, you know, people's minds play tricks on them and that memory isn't, doesn't record a snapshot like we would like to imagine it does. And so, um, in the same way, I think we're learning that we have to be careful about how we interpret DNA. And I'm, I'm certainly not, don't want to slam DNA evidence. I mean, it's, it's extremely valuable, um, evidence in in forensic science but we we've gotten so good at detecting tiny levels of it that now we've actually got to start think we have to start thinking about how to analyze it and you know what to make of it and and be looking for these kinds of alternate explanations you know Um, so you know it's just another one of those interesting things where the science has gotten so good that we've kind of created a new problem for ourselves.
1: <laughs> yeah. Science getting better and like eyewitnesses, not always a hundred percent accurate. Is that why I read in the book back in the past, they used to believe that when a body would bleed, like a dead body would bleed and somebody was there, that was evidence that there was a killer there. And in fact, three people were witnesses to murder, but the body didn't bleed. So got off the hook.
0: Exactly, exactly. It was, it's called cruentation. And it used to be like a thing that you would do in the courtroom, where you you'd bring the dead body in, and then bring the accused in and have them touch the dead body and see if anything happened. Because the idea was that you know, the dead body would like bear witness and it would bleed or leak something, you know, it would try to make make it known to the living world that something had gone wrong or that this was the killer. And you see this idea come up in a lot of old literature. It's in Shakespeare, you know, in Richard III, there's the same kind of thing where a, you know, a body starts to bleed when someone comes in the room and then everyone knows like, oh, that's the killer. And so, yeah, this was you know not just a crazy thing in Shakespeare. This was something that was actually like a pretty common idea, and actually was part of the legal system in some parts of the of the country and world until up up until the 1800s, really, which was kind of amazing to me. I mean, there was even uh, one of the last cases that was known of cruentation. was a case in the 1800s in the U.S. when um, someone had been murdered and the police actually had like all the townspeople from the area all walk by the body like one by one to see if the body would bleed (laughs) (laughs) when any of them in order to try to like figure out who done it, right? Um, So, you know, so that idea really it hung around for a pretty long time and you know, I mean, I think that it comes from the fact, I mean, it seems crazy now. It's like, you know, scientifically, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever that a body would bleed in the presence of its killer. But I think that, um, you know, it comes from our, our deep-seated wish and that, you know, that, that the dead could speak to us and our, you know, now we have new ways like DNA of trying to Um, basically get those sort of messages from the dead um, and to to try to tell what happened even though we can't see it for ourselves. But at the time, you know, before there was DNA, we had a lot of other ideas about, you know, um, you know, well maybe the body will will bleed because, you know, sometimes maybe there, maybe sometimes a a body did (laughs) bleed or leak fluid um yeah, you know, it's a common is,
1: occurrence like over time do uh,
0: just like as part of decomposition there is kind of um as part of the decay process things turn more into liquid and then liquid can come out through a body's um you know nose or mouth or ears even um and so that's not so uncommon you know because again we're talking about a time when bodies weren't being embalmed or preserved and so they were decaying naturally so so yeah maybe it was a you know a few days after a death a body hadn't been buried yet and um you know and there was some blood that came out of it um how people got the idea that that was linked to the killer being present i don't know <laughs> you know that 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 seems like kind of a leap but um you know, but certainly it, it certainly caught on. And there were other ideas about, you know, ways to, to try to, to uh, speak to the dead, essentially. Uh, the, the scientist who discovered a pigment called uh, rhodopsin in the eye um, had the idea that maybe you could use that pigment to create, to see the image that someone saw right before death. And that was they were called optograms, and he would make these things by basically taking the eye of the dead body and trying to make like a almost like a photographic print from it, um, picking up this pigment from the eye. And so the idea was to hopefully be able to see the last thing a person saw right before they died, and maybe you'd see the face of the killer or something like that. Um, and, you know, it didn't work, obviously, you just <laughs> okay. got kind of like blurry nothingness <laughs> from, you know, wherever the pigment randomly was in the eye. But, um, you know, but, but it was, it was one of those things, like, you know, it seemed like it was worth a try. <laughs> so there was a scientist who was willing to do the experiments.
1: <laughs> yeah, what, what do they have to lose? Screw it. Let's try it.
0: <laughs> yeah, let's try it. You know, I mean, it would have been really cool if it had worked. <laughs> it would <laughs> we would Talking about, you know, optograms in the, in the courtroom today, but um yeah, like a it, black
1: mirror episode
0: yeah <laughs> yeah there's a lot of you know science and science fiction you know end up not being too far apart sometimes I often say like I couldn't make this stuff up <laughs> the kind of stuff that I write about like often the truth is definitely far weirder than fiction
1: if you listen through the podcast you already see it in the title for the radio listeners I recommend you start going to the podcast This was a fun but long episode, so this is part one, and next week will be part two of The Dark Side of Science. This has been The Way Podcast. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com.